If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have one with you, you can borrow it from the back of the pew in front of you. And that black Bible, you can find Romans chapter 8 and beginning on page 887, although we will bleed over into the next page on 888. First line in a book can be a very good instance of how good that book will be. It's important. It's not the most important thing in a book, but it is important. We can recall great lines from books. Perhaps the most famous is the beginning to Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It's something to hang on to, something to to kind of set the stage for everything in a very concise and short statement. Music does this quite well with something that they call the hook, a catchy phrase set to the the most repeated part of the melody, the chorus, that that helps to bring you back to the main center of the song again and again and again. The whole purpose of this is to keep your your attention focused on this thing, to bring it to a, a central core idea. Paul is not immune to the same sort of thing. Paul shows that he has quite the hook in mind throughout the book of Romans, One of the variations of that theme, like a good composer, Paul brings out in the very first verse of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't sound exactly the same way he puts it in other places, but it's the same theme. It's the same theme we find at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, the same theme we find at the apex of Romans chapter 3, the same thing we find in the comparison between Christ and Adam in in Romans 5, the same thing we find when we talk about the freedom of the Christian in Romans chapter 6. Here, there's again no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the center and the core of all that Paul wishes to tell us, of all that Christians wish to tell the world, of all that the Word of God has come to tell us, that now there is no condemnation for those who find themselves in Jesus Christ. It is the very defining thing of Christianity. It's like the sun in our solar system. You can lose planets... We kicked Pluto out to warn all the other planets. We mean business. But we could lose them. We can lose Jupiter. We could lose Saturn. And we still, we still have a solar system. But you can't lose the sun. There is no solar system without the sun. There is no Christian proclamation without the proclamation that those who are now in Christ Jesus have no condemnation before God. This is the center of of everything that Paul, the early church, the latter church, the church until Jesus Christ comes will proclaim. But is that proclamation just something that helps us in the final end of days? Is this just a proclamation that that helps us as we prepare to stand before the throne of God? Is it, as we might want to say, our get-out-of-jail-free card? It's sort of like the lawyer who comes to you and says, hey, don't worry about the trial. I found a legal loophole, and I know how to get you out of it. I've got technicalities, man, and they will work for you. Is that what this is? Remember, we've been speaking about the law in Romans chapter 6, the end of it in chapter 7. What we've been saying is not that the law cannot save you, which was, again, the very center of everything that Christians proclaim. Paul is not possibly arguing for that because the Romans already believed that. What Paul has actually been arguing for is that the law cannot make us holy. 
The law can't make you sanctified. The law can't lead you to actually do the things that God calls for you to do. What we see today is that the juxtaposition is between the law and doing the law and between faith in Christ. Paul's answer for how to be holy before God is to be holy by faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. How does our faith in Jesus make us holy? Not just holy in stature, not just holy because God has set us aside in Christ and loves us in Christ, not just holy in position, like we are, we are like the holy instruments of the temple set aside for the special use of God, but truly holy in our acts, in the very way we walk through the world, in fruit and in deed. How does our faith make us holy? How does it sanctify us? Let us go to the word of the Lord in Romans chapter 8 and see what Paul says here. Paul begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of our God. It is holy and inerrant and good for us. As we go then to consider this word today and how it is that faith partners with our sanctification, we're simply going to say at the very outset in point one that our sanctification is in Christ. Let's consider our sanctification in Christ. Paul has that beautiful opening line in chapter 8, verse 1, and he follows it up by explaining exactly why it is. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I am not one who believes that adding adjectives to nouns immediately changes the meaning of that noun. It can simply describe it. There are certain people who really want to make a big deal about that, but here I think it is clear that this is not the law of Moses that is being talked about necessarily in either one of these scenarios. Remember that the law itself was not just the moral component of the law as we sometimes think of it, But it was an entire system of living, of behaving, a way of of the nation of Israel to work as a nation and indeed as a religious people before their God. 
It wasn't just, you ought not do this and you ought to do this, but it was a way for them to reconcile with one another, a way for them to reconcile with God. The whole point in Paul talking about the law was to say that as soon as you have the law being used by sinful people, it is sin that wields the law for its own good purposes. And those purposes are not good. The sin in us, when it gets a hold of the law, simply shows how sinful it is because it perverts that which is good and true and holy. This works for all systems. It's not just for the system of the law. It works for, obviously, immoral systems that are set up to be unjust. But even for those that we consider good, whether it's capitalism, whether it's democracy, when sin infests those things, greed and the power-hungry can take over. But what Paul is saying here is that the law of the Spirit shortcuts all that. That the law itself was ruled by sin and therefore it ended only in death. But the law of the Spirit, the, the way in which the Spirit would have you live, the system by which the Spirit would move you forward in the world, cuts through all of that. It gives us life. It empowers us to do what is right. The very thing that the law lacked was an ability to get you to do it. You have that, not in yourself, but only through the provision of the Spirit to you. Paul then begins in, in verse 3 through the beginning of verse 4 to in one and a half incredibly tightly packed verses tell us a number of beautiful things about Jesus that I will not possibly be able to get through in the time that's given to me. So I'm just going to take extra time to go through them. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The flesh weakened the purpose and the result of the law because we were sinful. We ruined the very thing that the law was to bring about, which was life, that Israel might live in the land, that they might flourish in the land. But because the people of Israel were sinful, not extraordinarily sinful, just normally sinful, like every other group of human beings on the face of the planet, they ruined it. They distorted and perverted the very goodness of the law. It was weakened by the flesh. But God himself acted so that it would not end badly for us. First he says, he sent his own son. It is quite clear that if he sent his own son to take on flesh, that his own son was not fleshy to begin with. It, it argues that, that the son was indeed the son before he ever came to this earth that there was never a time that the Son was not. The Son himself, being sent from God as the very nature of God, took on flesh. And what's more, Paul says that he condemned sin in the flesh. Back in chapter 6, we read that we died with Christ, which is quite clearly a metaphor and a difficult one at that. Because while we've been baptized... We entered into a kind of death, a symbolic death, and we might even want to think that we have actually symbolically died with Christ. But what does it mean to have died with Christ? Paul's going to go on later on in this passage to talk about the fact that we indeed will still die. So what does it mean that we died with Christ? This is perhaps a, a much more direct, it's not lacking in metaphor, but maybe a much more direct way of talking about how we have died with Christ. Back in chapter 6, Paul said this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Those three verses from verse 3 to verse 5 are expanded in the beginning of chapter 8 and made to sort of fill up the entirety of the space. What he means by what he says here in chapter 8, that he condemns sin in the flesh, is that if it is our sin that leads to our death, if it is our sin that calls for our death, if it is our sin that is due a death, then as Christ takes on that death, that death is ours. When he dies for our sin, he dies our death. And therefore, we have died with him. That is as good a death as we could ever possibly give. Our accounts are reconciled. Our debt has been paid. He condemns our sin in the flesh. He condemns it. He judges it. He penalizes it and punishes it in the flesh of Jesus Christ and not in our flesh. Notice what he says as well. He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's he's like us. Our Lord and Savior is like us. He takes on the likeness of sinful flesh. We talked in Sunday school this morning about Gnosticism and Docetism, which, which want to say that Jesus was indeed the Savior, but that he didn't take on flesh, that he was too good to do that. He was too good to clothe himself with this, this gross flesh, this material stuff. And Paul goes out of his way to say, no, he was like us in sinful flesh. His flesh had all of the difficulties that we had. He didn't just appear to take on flesh. He didn't just appear to be a man. He was a man. Sometimes our problem is not the problem of the early church. The early church, the problem was that they thought too little of the humanity of Jesus and too much of his divinity. We have the exact opposite problem because we're dealing with modernism and we're dealing with postmodernism. So we want to make very, very clear that Jesus was God. But just as Jesus took on our flesh, we need to understand that his flesh did not make him sort of superhuman. That he handled temptation, that he handled the difficulties of the flesh the exact same way that all of you and I can. Not through an appeal to his divinity but by the very nature of the humanity that God gave to him. After his his baptism, he hears a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit drives him in Matthew chapter 4 out to the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan shows up to tempt him. And Satan has an incredibly wicked temptation for him. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. God has just proclaimed him to be his son. If you truly are that, well then, make these stones into bread. Man, that, that sounds tempting. Maybe you would make it into a, you know, five guys burger or something like that, but bread sounds pretty good if you're hungry. And he was hungry. The text goes out of its way to tell you that this was not only a temptation, a real, true temptation for Jesus, but that he was hungry. Forty days is a long time not to eat, man. It's a long time. If you truly are the Son of God, do this. How does Jesus fight back? How does Jesus resist? He says, 
No, the word of God says man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, I don't need to do that to prove that I am the son of God. God has declared it. The whole point of the issue is that he was truly tempted and that he overcame that temptation not by simply declaring that he is God divinely enfleshed in human flesh, but rather that he resists the temptation by appealing to the same thing that we can appeal to, by battling it the same way we can, by going to Scripture. He is in the likeness of sinful flesh, but it is the likeness. He is not sin. His flesh allows him to take on our sin. It allows him to redeem us because he became like us in every way, only without sin. In all of this, we would say that he shared all that he needed to in order to be our sacrifice and to condemn sin in, our, in his flesh. He had everything that he needed and nothing that would taint himself so that he might be a pure and spotless sacrifice for us which is exactly what those two little words for sin means. They, they hearken back to all of the sacrificial system and to all of the sacrifices that are given there. Those sacrifices are given for sin. Jesus Christ came for our sin. He did not die for his own sin. He came for his and to be a sacrifice for it. He died so that we would not have to. Now, all of that is, is wonderful and beyond our comprehension, beyond the goodness of what we could possibly conceive. But isn't this simply just spoken of typically in terms of our justification? Isn't the taking away of our sin, the taking away of our guilt, and thereby the means by which God can declare us to be good and holy and righteous in a sight to, to not acquit us? or to acquit us of all of the things that are being, we're being charged with? Isn't it his way of saying, no, no, you are righteous in my sight. The accusations of the devil will not stick against us. But Jesus didn't die simply to forgive us. Nor did he simply die in order to justify us, in order that God might declare us to be not guilty of the things that we are charged with by Satan or even by the law of God. No, he died to save us. For a lot of people, salvation means nothing more than, where will I go when I die? Am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? This is what it means to be saved. You don't go to hell, you do go to heaven. But that language is not quite what the Bible means when it talks about us being saved. Because salvation isn't just about a place where you end up, it's about a wholeness of being. Salvation is not just our destination, but who we are and who we will become. So that we are no longer going to be just where we belong. When we are in heaven, it's not like we can just look around and be like, this is where I belong. But we are indeed those who belong there. We are the people who belong before the throne of God. We are the people who belong to God. God is our God, and we will be his people. And when we view salvation that way, what Paul is saying is that Jesus dying for us as a sacrifice means much more than just the fact that we get to go to heaven, but has tremendous implications for how we live here and now. 
Our salvation in Christ is both our justification and our sanctification. It all flows from it. He turns around immediately and says, why did all of this happen? He doesn't say, so that you might be justified. But he says the purpose in verse 4, the very purpose of it, is ordered in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice the language there. Not that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled for us. Not that Jesus dies to fulfill the law, which is perfectly true. Not what Paul is saying. So that we in us might fulfill the righteous requirement. What is that? You'll notice that it's in the singular. It's not plural. He's not talking about all the righteous requirements of the law, the 600-some laws that the Jews could, could point to as they worked through the Torah. Paul is arguing that we don't need the system of the law to do what the law requires. The question is, what does the law require? Paul is emphatic in his answer to this. In Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He says it in another place, in Galatians 5, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul doesn't just say this. Our Lord and Savior says this. This is the very crux of the entirety of the law. All of the weight of the law, all of it is carried in this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. What Paul is saying is that if you truly understand what it means to belong to Christ and to belong to him by faith, that you can carry forth that command. You can, requirement that is given to us by the law can be fulfilled in us through faith. And this is because of point two. It's because of our spirit from Christ. We indeed now have the spirit of God through what Jesus has done for us. The problem in verse 4, especially at the end of verse 4, which says, this is the ones who the righteous requirement is filled through, are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's not quite right. Many people add in that word walk there because they're trying to make sense of what The Greek is saying, because the Greek actually works really well. English doesn't work very well, so there's a reason why that word is implied there. But you'll notice what what that particular translation does. No matter how you want to swing it, no matter how you read it, the onus of our sanctification all of a sudden becomes immensely heavy on us. Who are the people who are to do the righteous requirements of the law? Well, it's those who walk a certain way or those who have their minds set on a certain thing. They either, you're walking or your mind is set there or your mind is set there and therefore you walk, but the onus is on you. The commandment comes to you. You are the one who has to walk this way or you're the one who has to think this way. But that doesn't seem to be at all what Paul is talking about. What Paul has been talking about was his very nature. When he went to the law, When we go back to Romans chapter 7, he's talking about the law. 
He says, I, I want to keep the law, but I, I can't do it. There's something in me, this sin, this part of my flesh that keeps me from doing the very thing that I want to do. Indeed, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. He's talking about his nature as a human being. This is why he screams out, who will save me from this body of death? Who is going to fix this nature that I have? The word that Paul uses here is the very word that we get the idea of ontology from. Ontology is the study of being. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it it mean to have a human nature? That is the study of ontology. What Paul is saying here is not those who walk according to the flesh, but those who have their beings defined by the flesh or have their beings defined by the Spirit. Perhaps a better translation would be this in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, whose nature is not defined by the flesh, but by the Spirit. The question becomes, how do we get that? How do we have our natures changed? Or perhaps we could go back to Nicodemus and ask his question, is a grown man to be born again? How does that work? How does that happen? How can you make it happen? And Jesus' answer is exact. He says, you should be born again, which also means you need to be born from above. It is the work of God that works in you. No one in this world can change their nature. You can dress differently. You can do your best to act differently. You you can cover yourself in tattoos or you can try to cover up all of your tattoos. You can change your hairstyle. You can change your dress. You can change the clothes that you wear. You can change the crowds that you, you travel in. But you cannot change your fundamental nature. One of the One of my favorite movies, I've never read the book, but one of my favorite movies is The Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's based on a Roald Dahl. Uh, I I don't always recommend movies to everybody because sometimes they're a little... But this one's good for everybody. You can watch it. Watch it with your kids. It's a fantastic movie. Um, There is some language in it, so I will warn you about that, but it's like fake language, but nevertheless, you don't even know what that means until you watch it, and then you'll be like, oh, I get that. So, anyways, in The Fantastic Mr. Fox, at the very beginning of the movie... He and his wife are stealing um, squabs, and they're stealing chickens, and she seems very hesitant about the whole thing, and it turns out that she's pregnant, and she says, listen, this is the last time we're doing this. You have a family to worry about now. I'm concerned about you getting trapped. I'm concerned about you getting killed. We're done, okay? He says, you need to promise me you won't do this anymore. He says, okay. Two years later, it's clear that he is now engaging in the same behaviors that he promised he wouldn't. And the very thing that she feared is coming true. He has continually put his family in trouble. They've lost their home. They're on the run. And she takes him aside. She slaps him. She says, you promised me that you would never do this. Why? Answer me, why? His answer is really simple. He says, I'm a wild animal. I I can't not do it. I'm a fox. Foxes steal. Foxes cheat. That's what we do. I can't do anything else. She complains. He says, but you are also a husband and a father. The rest of the movie is about proving not how he will change, but how he will adapt. He will still cheat. He will still lie. He will still steal. But he will do so in service to his family as a husband and a father. But 
He never stops being a fox and he never stops being a wild animal. Friends, you can do all you want to to turn over a new leaf. You can do all you want to to become different than you are, but you can't change the nature of who you are. You will always be a sinner. You might strive to keep the law of God, but so long as that sinful nature is in you, you cannot please God. There is no way you can. The Spirit has indeed come to do that for us. It has come to change our nature. This is what the prophets mean when they speak of giving us a new heart or of circumcising the heart or writing the law on our hearts or giving us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. They weren't just saying that that you were going to have changed what you longed for, but that you were going to be made different. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 36. God there says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all the idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That is not just the giving of new desires, that's giving of a whole new nature, a whole new heart, a heart that is clean, a heart that is pure, a heart that wants and longs for the right things. God says, I will make you new. This is why the New Testament clearly picks up not only the the passage that I talked about from John 3, but everywhere else. talks about this radical change that needs to happen. You need to be born again. You need to be a new creation. You need to be completely different than what you were. This happens with the giving of the Spirit of God for those who believe in Christ Jesus. He has removed from us our old nature by killing our sin on the cross and condemning it. And therefore, a new one is provided to us by the Spirit. Jesus says this, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. I think that's, that's not, the guy is not cracking open the genius books here. Like, that is just how we define good fruit and bad fruit, right? And good trees and bad trees. If you go to an apple tree and all of the fruit is horrible. If it's, if it's laced with grossness and rottenness, you don't say, my God, that is a great apple tree, right? He's just, this is really straightforward. If, if the tree is healthy, if we're going to call a tree healthy, it is a tree that bears good fruit. That's what makes it healthy. If we're going to call a tree diseased, it's because it bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You can tell the people the Spirit of God has worked on because they produce good fruits. In Psalm 1, the very beginning of the Psalms, a setter of all this setting of all of the, the Psalms that will come after it. The psalmist begins by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but rather, blessed is the man who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That's the blessing of a man. And his leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Frankly, even though it's barren outside right now because it's negative 48 or whatever it is out there, 
You can plant a tree anywhere in Michigan in the spring, and it'll take. We've got like 18,000 lakes in the state. We've got hundreds of thousands of rivers and streams. You can plant a tree anywhere, and it's going to grow. Not so in the desert. You can't just plant a tree anywhere. Trees that are going to grow are planted by a source of life. You need to have a source of life. And what the psalmist is saying is that the man who walks in the way of scoffers, stands in the way of sinners, that man is like a tree planted out in the desert. He has no chance. But the blessed man who follows the law of the Lord is like one who is planted by a river. Those roots reach down and they have a source of life for them. That source of life for us is nothing less than the Spirit of God. We were dead in all of our efforts and strivings to keep the law and to be sanctified and holy before God in any other means, but the Spirit being given to us through faith in Christ is like water to us. It enlivens us and gives us the ability and the, the, the empowerment to keep the righteous requirement of the law. The Spirit makes our roots and our nature new. Again, Paul's cry back in chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's not simply saying, who will, who will make sure that I can be before God in heaven? His cry is to say, I don't want to sin anymore. How in the world am I ever going to be spared? This, this sin, this thing that I don't want to do, that I keep doing, how will I ever be freed from that? Paul's answer in salvation is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and through that to receive the Spirit, that he might empower us, that he might lead us and guide us. Paul is not thereby saying that you have no role to play in that, but he is saying that your role is secondary. If not for the Spirit of God coming, if not for the faith that you have in Christ, there is no sanctification for you. This then leads to point number three, our resurrection through Christ. He says, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you have the Spirit of God, you can't be in the flesh. You must be in the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He goes on in, in verse 10 to say, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. It's a weird thing to say, although the body is dead. I think what Paul is doing here is explaining a common kind of question that most Christians have. If God saved us so that we would be with him forever, and there is now no punishment and no condemnation for those of us who know Jesus Christ, why do we die? Why do we get old? Why do our joints start to hurt and we sleep poorer at night? Why is it that we, we end up sort of falling apart in life? Isn't that a form of judgment? We're told everywhere else that death is judgment. Isn't that a form of judgment? Why, why do we die? I think that Paul is here admitting that we do indeed die. The body is as good as dead. When he says the body is dead, I, he doesn't mean that your body is actually dead. It moves, it talks, it does all the normal things the body does, but it's as good as dead. It will one day perish. And it is because of sin that that happens. Our bodies hold on to sin. It, the way Paul writes here, it reminds me of muscle memory. So if you've ever done 
any sort of studies as to why it is that, that people can, can go play golf and hit and swing the club exactly the same way every time. They do it without thinking about it. How NBA shooters can shoot three-pointers just unconsciously, just grabbing a ball and shoot it and do it the same way every time, the way musicians can, can play a D chord. You don't have to ask Mark, like, he's not thinking through where he puts his hands to play that. He just does. Why? Because his fingers know where to go. It's muscle memory. Your body holds on to those things. Seems like what Paul is saying here is, as well, your body just kind of holds on to sin. It has a good memory for it. It strains and stretches you for it. It desires it above all things. So that body needs to be put to death to give you a better body, a body that is not going to succumb to those things, a body that is not mortal but is immortal. This death is somewhat rather limited. Your soul has been remade, it's been recreated and reborn. Your body has not gone through that process. And so the death that we have is a death where your body is being remade and made new again. We often say that life comes at you fast. Hardly. Death does, though. Every year it comes faster and faster and faster. Nevertheless, Paul has good news because although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And he goes on to say, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The point of verse 11 is the same as the point of verse 10. The spirit will one day give life to your bodies. Just as the Spirit has given life to your soul, just as the Spirit gives good things to your spirit, your soul, spirit, same thing, one day it will also give life to your bodies. This is why he says it is because of righteousness. Jesus died and was buried. Now ask yourself, if he was dead and buried, and he stayed dead and buried, if he was never resurrected from the grave, how would we know that he died for our sins and not for his own? How would we know that God accepted that as a true sacrifice, not for himself, but for others? We would have no way of knowing. The point of his resurrection is that by being raised, God justifies him. God says he's actually not guilty of any of the sin that was thrust upon him. Therefore, he has no reason to stay dead. Death has no claim on him. And he raises him from the grave. Likewise, Paul argues, if we are justified in Christ, then even if we die, part of our justification is the giving to us of new bodies that show that we are indeed free from sin now, that the sin of our mortal bodies no longer hangs on us, but we get immortality, we get resurrection and perfect resurrection as well. We will be raised because of justification The assumption through all of this, all of it, is that Christians desire to be holy. We we want to want the right things. We want bodies that will eventually help us carry out the right things. We want to be free from temptation. We want to be free from evil. We want to be free from sin. And we want to do what it takes to be holy and pure and righteous before God. So ask yourselves, what do you truly want? Do you want heaven? 
Yes, you do. It's okay. I know you thought I was leading you into a trap there, but it's okay. You can want heaven. Heaven's good. Be in heaven. That's great. Do you want peace and comfort? Absolutely. But in our own sinfulness, we often find that we want these things without truly wanting holiness. And wanting holiness as an end in and of itself. Not as a gain monetarily, not as a gain for reputation, not because other people sort of tell us that we need to do this and we want to do it simply to fit in with them, but because holiness before God is desirable in and of itself. Psychologists sometimes, well, I I shouldn't say that. I don't know if psychologists actually do this. They do it on TV, though, so we'll count that as good. They play word association games, right? So they say a phrase, and then you say the first thing that comes into mind. We're not a very reactive crowd, so this is what we'll do. You just say it in your head. When I say a word, you think of the first thing that comes to your mind, right? So, for instance, if I said Old Testament, think to yourself, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the first word or phrase or, or series of thoughts that come to mind? If I say sunrise, what's the first thing that comes to mind? If I say hot dog, the right answer there is Pastor Richard or Jimmy. The rest of them are wrong. If I say water, what's the first thing that comes to mind? If I say holiness, what do you really think of? Perhaps you think of God. We think of God's holiness as a good thing abstracted from us. But when we think of God's holiness toward us, quite frankly, I think the vast majority of us would think of it as a good thing for him and bad news for us. There's a weight to God's holiness which is is weighty to the point of oppression. His holiness is the thing that crushes sinners. It is this intense purity and grandeur of God that we just can't escape. When it comes to us, perhaps you thought of, of your own holiness. It's perfectly okay. You probably thought of it as difficult or as something that you have to work very, very hard for, labor-intensive. Perhaps you're wrong, but I, I think that that would be what I would have said. When you read through this eighth chapter of Romans, it's clear that we are reading one of the most uplifting and encouraging chapters not just in Paul, in all of Scripture, and therefore in all of literature. Of all the things ever written, this might be the best chapter of them all. And, frankly, the vast majority of it centers on our holiness, on our sanctification before the Lord. Perhaps we should consider that holiness ought to be thought of as joyous and not simply as a labor to be undertaken or as the holiness of God that might crush us, as a gift instead of work, as given in grace instead of the punishment that we are due by justice. Holiness has a gravity and a weightiness to it, but man, it is so infused with goodness that it should result in a deep and joy-filled satisfaction. One of the best bits of my week when it happens is prayer meeting. I know that, that only a few select people come to that. I'm telling you, you should come to it. I love the thing. I really do. We meet 
we, we read through prayers. I get to listen to how other people think about those psalms. I get to listen to the things that they say about those psalms in prayer before God. It always sticks with me. Honestly, it sticks with me more than the passages that I, I read and study in order to preach on Sunday mornings. I, I love it. Psalm 33 begins this way. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Then it says, praise befits the upright. Isn't that crazy? The holy. Praise befits the holy. If you are holy, praise is your thing. It's, it's the clothing that fits you. It's that shirt that you love so much because it just sits well on you. It is the thing that you, you put around you all the time. It befits you. It, it works with you. If you are righteous and you are holy, it's a joyous thing. Paul is using a bunch of courtroom language here. Yeah, he's using condemnation and righteousness and all of that, but you need to understand, his cry here is indeed therapeutic. It is about making people whole and well and good. He says, who will save me from this body? Who will save me? What can heal me from the effects of sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So when you read in Peter, the reminder, he says, be holy, for I am holy. Peter's reminding him, just, just like in Leviticus 19, so often now, be holy, for I am holy. Remember that that is a commandment of God, but it is the same kind of commandment that God spoke in the very beginning when he said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be land, and there was land. It is a command, and it is a promise, and it is a gift. He is telling you to be holy. What he commands is what he gives. Be holy, for I am holy. Love one another, for against such things there is no law. Let us pray. What a gift we have in you, Jesus Christ our Lord. You have done what the law could not do. You have not only given us full and complete forgiveness for our sins, but you have taken our sin taken our sinful natures and given us the Spirit, made us holy. Let us be who are those who are truly that holy and righteous before you. And let us see that for what it is, not something to achieve, not a work to be had, but a gift that is given to us from Jesus Christ our Lord. Not a labor to be lamented, nor simply a passive portion of our lives, but a gift that is to be pursued and used for the good of the body of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately to the glory of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.